In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the, anyone, anyone, the Great Depression, passed the, anyone, anyone, a tariff bill, the Hawley-Smoot Tariff Act, which anyone raised or lowered, raised tariffs in an effort to collect more revenue for the federal government. Did it work? Anyone? Anyone know the effects? In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the, anyone, anyone, the Great Depression. For our thought of the day, just to kind of whet your appetite on what I'm going to be talking about in my sermon today, if you go ahead and advance to that next slide. Last week, we talked about these, what we call the Ministry Insights, Different things that sort of are our guiding principles of how we do faith and life here at Gloria Day. And last week I gave a sermon about the bottom one, questions and doubts. If you remember, I talked about how faith and doubt are not opposites of each other. The opposite of faith and doubt is certainty. When you have certainty about something, you no longer need to have faith about it, you no longer need to have doubt about it. Okay? But so much of our faith life in Christ can't necessarily be proven beyond the shadow of a doubt. If we could, the whole world would be Christian and, and evangelism would need to be no more. Okay? So we live in a, in, a, in a world where there is faith, but there is also doubt. And faith and doubt can work together to strengthen our experience of Christ. It's, it's, the, it's really the, the fuel that, that, that fuels the engine. Okay? So, anyway, we talked last week about questions and doubts. Today I'm going to go to the next one right next to it, above it, to the left. Lab, not lecture. Lab, not lecture. Now, it's fairly straightforward, but I'm going to flesh it out a little bit more in my sermon. But really, the, the, the bottom line of this is here at Gloria Day, we are a church that gets our hands dirty. We are a church in action. We aren't just a church that sits there. I'll talk a lot more about what that means, but again, just to kind of get you thinking about what it means to be a church that focuses on being a lab, not so much focusing all the time on just being a place of lecture. Okay? All right. Uh, We're going to continue with our worship. Our gospel lesson today is recorded for us in John's Gospel, the first chapter. The next day, he, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. 
When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Here ends our gospel lesson. I'll invite you to be seated. First thing I want to want to say today is, Excited to see a redheaded kid get baptized. And I'll tell you why. I am from a family of redheads. My grandmother, my grandma Ann, red hair. My father, Donald Zasky. Nobody knew my dad as Donald Zasky. Everybody called him red. From literally from the moment he was a little kid, well into his adult years, he was red Zasky. When I was a little kid, I had red hair. I did. I can show you pictures. <laughs> I had hair. <laughs> um, it, it, it started to change on me about in second grade. It darkened some. But I was a redhead. My two kids, our son Tim has my color hair now, but my daughter Ann, another Ann Zasky, another redhead. Okay. So, Koa, thumbs up. Love, love, love the red hair. Uh, Go ahead and advance that, to that next uh, slide, if you would. As I mentioned for my sermon today, uh, I'm going to be talking about this concept from our ministry insights that we call lab, not lecture. Now, I, I think that all of us at one time or another have found ourselves in a situation like this. Go ahead and advance that, if you would. Hey, you ever been there? I've been there a time or two. Maybe you feel like you're in that situation right now. I don't know. Okay. I got a little one-minute video I want to show you that will maybe remind you of your high school days. It kind of reminds me of mine. It's from one of my all-time favorite movies, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's, it's a scene that takes place in a high school classroom, and it pretty much explains itself, but I think it lends... A little bit into what I want to talk about today. So go ahead, if you would, and in and 1930, play us our video. the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the anyone, anyone, the Great Depression, passed the anyone, anyone, a tariff bill, the Hawley Smoot Tariff Act, which anyone raised or lowered, raised tariffs in an effort to collect more revenue for the federal government. Did it work? Anyone? Anyone know the effects? It did not work, and the United States sank deeper into the Great Depression. Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone seen this before? The Laffer Curve. Anyone know what this says? It says that at this point on the revenue curve, you will get exactly the same amount of revenue as at this point. This is very controversial. Does anyone know what Vice President Bush called this in 1980? Anyone? Something D-O-O economics. Voodoo economics. Been there before? 
Yeah. I, I find boring lectures to be unbearable. In fact, the only thing I think that is worse than a boring lecture is a boring sermon. Kind of reminds me of, of a couple stories. A man goes to church. The pastor begins his sermon and proceeds to go on and on and on. Finally, the parishioner cannot take it any longer. Angrily, he gets up and leaves. And on his way out of the church, an usher says to him, Hey, Bob, why are you leaving the service before it's over? And Bob replied, I have to get a haircut. But why didn't you get a haircut be- before the service? asked the usher. I didn't need one then, said Bob. <laughs> also reminds me of this story. A lady said to her pastor after worship, she said, Pastor, the entire time I was listening to your sermon today, I was thinking about God's peace and God's love. And the pastor said, that's very nice of you to say. And the lady said, yes, I was thinking about your sermon and about God's peace and God's love, and I was thinking about how all three will never come to an end. All right, back, back to our main topic here. When, when Jesus called the twelve disciples, he did not, and I repeat, did not say to them, come be with me, and you will get to sit and listen to me lecture to you for 16 hours a day for the next three years. What do you say, fellas? Does that sound like a good deal? Jesus did not do that. Jesus called the disciples to come and follow him. Literally follow him. As in to put on your sandals, to stand up and move yourself in the same direction that I am moving myself. What Jesus was telling them is, guys, we are going to go places. And when we go to those places, we're going to get our hands dirty. We're going to do stuff. Now, that's not to say that Jesus didn't, on occasion, have the guys sit still and receive some teaching. That that did happen. Happened from time to time with, with some regularity. But if you read the Gospels carefully, what you will see is that Jesus and the disciples most often were in action. Jesus taught the disciples things so that they could go out and actually do them. For example, Jesus taught the the disciples how to accept outsiders so that they would go out and actually accept outsiders. Jesus taught the, the disciples how to forgive others so that those disciples would go out and bravely extend forgiveness to others, even to those people that maybe didn't even deserve it. Again, Jesus taught the disciples the Lord's Prayer so that they would actually pray it. You see, the things that Jesus taught the disciples weren't taught to them just so they could have head knowledge. The things the disciples learned weren't just supposed to stay kind of forever locked in their brains, sitting there like like an old trunk up in the attic. Jesus taught them things, the disciples learned things, so that they could go out and do them. So they could do life and have an abundant life. 
And let, let me just, just to kind of illustrate this, let me just give you a silly example here of what I mean by this. I want you to kind of picture this situation. Picture my neighbor calling me in a complete panic. Okay, my neighbor calls me in a complete panic. And she says to me, hey Mike, this is Judy next door. Uh, I, I have raw sewage backing up in the drain in, in my basement utility room. It's, it's a disaster. Do, do you by chance know what to, I should do? Do you know what to do? And imagine if I very calmly said in reply to her, yep, I know exactly what you should do. Well, nice to hear from you, Judy. Good luck. It'd be ridiculous, right? My neighbor needs me in that situation to take my brain knowledge and put that knowledge into action, especially when you got raw sewage coming up. I mean, it's, it's important to know things, right? We've got to know things. But I want to convince you today that it's even more important to take those things that we know and use them. Now, I tell you that silly story because the sad truth is that too often, in far too many churches, that's the kind of thing that is going on. There are churches out there where they do lots and lots of teaching. And the people's brains in those churches get full of all kinds of information. The people of those churches are, are very knowledgeable about, about a whole plethora of topics. They, they can quote you all the Bible chapters and verses, and yet, somehow, somehow, they never actually lift a finger to use any of that knowledge. This goes on all the time. Many, many churches. you got churches where the people know all about feeding the hungry. They know all about how important that is, and yet they never actually provide a meal to anyone. you got churches where they know all about the plight of, of single, frightened, pregnant women. They know all about it. But nobody in that congregation has ever helped such an expectant mother, not helped her financially, certainly has never helped anybody like that face to face. you got churches out there where they know how crucial it is that the love of God be shared in as many ways as possible. They've got that in their brains. But you know what? They've never mentioned God. They've never mentioned their church to anyone in years, if they've ever done it. This goes on all the time. And what breaks my heart is the fact that a statistically significant number of churches like this that I've described are Lutheran churches. I'm going to just tell you straight up, because I mix with a lot of pastors from a lot of other churches, a lot of other Christian denominations. One of the regular criticisms that are made about Lutherans by these other church traditions is this. They will say, you Lutherans know your stuff. You Lutherans have memorized your small catechisms. You Lutherans can sing a dozen hymns from memory. But, they will say, you Lutherans have got some work to do on learning how to put those things into action. 
Which is why, my dear friends, that one of our ministry insights here at Gloria Day is the one that we're discussing today, this one that we call Lab Not Lecture. Because here at Gloria Day, we collectively dedicate ourselves to being people who take with the utmost seriousness the action end of things. Together, we are not content just to have head knowledge. We take the teachings of Jesus and we strive to put those teachings into concrete action. In other words, we see our lives together here at Gloria today at Gloria Day as being kind of like a lab. Similar to a science lab. Think about a science lab. What do you do in a science lab? You do experiments. You're in motion. You're trying to make innovative discoveries. That's what we're about here. We're trying to make innovative discoveries of new ways that we can bring the love of Christ to a world in need of that love. And so if I could kind of put it succinctly, Gloria Day will not be and will never be a place where we gather once a week just to get a lecture and then wait 167 hours until we get the next lecture. It's not who we are. We are people who will get our hands dirty. We are a lab. We will do both. We will learn things and we will do things. We will not just accomplish one or the other. Here at Gloria Day, it's a both deal. Learn and do. And we do not settle for anything less than that. Now, I want to close with a story about why this matters so much. Why we want to be a place that not only learns things, but also does things. And I I want to talk about why we cannot afford to just be a lecture place that has no lab component to it. Go ahead and advance to that next slide, if you would. I want to introduce you to this woman that you see behind me. Her name is Corrie Tenboom. Corrie Tenboom grew up in the Netherlands. She's, she's Dutch. Her family, during World War II, hid Jews from the Nazis. But eventually they got caught. They were arrested. And every member of the family was sent to a concentration camp. Corey and her sister Betsy wound up at a camp called Ravensbrück. In Ravensbrück, they suffered from near starvation. They suffered unimaginable barbaric cruelty from the guards. Corey's sister Betsy died in Ravensbrück. But, but Corey survived. And so after the war, what Corey did was she began doing charitable work. And one night, she was speaking at a church in Munich, Germany. You know, kind of like what we're doing right now. So she's speaking at this church in Munich, Germany, and who happened to come into the church but perhaps the cruelest guard of them all from the Ravensbrück concentration camp? Corey recognized this guy immediately. And her speech that night to the people of Munich, ironically, was 
that God is a God of forgiveness. She was telling the people that night that no sin is too great for God to forgive. She said that God drowns all of our sins in the bottom of the sea. So that's what Corey was speaking about that night. And she spots this cruel guard from Ravensbrook that came in. Anyhow, after her speech, Corey saw, much to her horror, that this former guard was making his way right down the center aisle to greet her. And again, she knew who he was. She recognized him immediately. He had no idea who she was. He had tortured so many people in that camp, he had no idea who she was. But he comes up and he says to her, A fine message tonight, Fraulein. And then this horrendous man extended to her his hand. And all that Corey could see in her mind was that hand holding the leather whip that he used to beat people with. As you can imagine, her blood froze. And this guy continued, he said, You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He said, I was a guard there. But since that time, he said, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there. But, he said, I would like to hear it from your lips as well. And so Fraulein, and again, he had his hand out to shake it. He said, will you forgive me? And Corey said the first thing that popped into her head was her, her sister Betsy. And she thought, could this man who had committed such brutal, savage, monstrous atrocities, could he really erase Betsy's death just simply for the asking? Could he really expect her to just forgive him? And here's what Corey wrote about it. She said, it could not have been many seconds that he stood there with his hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. Now folks, I just as a little aside here, understand something. Corey in her head knew all about forgiveness. She knew that in Matthew chapter 18 verse 22, Jesus told Peter that he was to forgive not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. Corey had all the head knowledge that a person would ever need concerning the topic of forgiveness. She had heard the lectures. She herself had given the lectures. But understand, this former guard wasn't asking Corey for a lecture. He wasn't asking her for information about forgiveness. He wasn't hoping that Corey could point him to a, a Bible verse or two where Jesus spoke about forgiveness. What this man was asking Corey was to actually do forgiveness. To make forgiveness a real thing and not merely a theoretical thing. Because you see, that's the point of forgiveness. The point of forgiveness is not so that we can just have it up here in our heads. The point is so that when the rubber meets the road, you and I can actually extend forgiveness. I want to read for you what Corey wrote about what happened next. She wrote this. She says, Woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, 
And as I did that, an incredible thing took place. An electrical current started in my shoulder. It raced down my arm. It sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being. It brought tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried. I forgive you with all my heart. I want to close by saying this. Lectures alone do not create an electrical current like the one that shot down Corey Ten Boom's arm. Labs, however, do. That handshake and those words of forgiveness that Corey spoke to that cruel guard that night were the high point of her life. That was the absolute pinnacle of her life. And friends, if we try to live our lives out with only head knowledge, what will happen is is that we will miss out on the high points of our lives. We'll miss out on that electrical current going through our arms. And that would be a tragedy. And so that's why, let me say it one more time, here at Gloria Day, we will always stress lab not lecture.